Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. All right, Kenna, before we start the episode, do you want to plug our Patreon? Yeah, uh, we have a Patreon. Do, 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 do. Um, and we have like bonus content. You can ask us questions and a lot of times we will answer. Um, usually yours truly. <laughs> Kenna's answering. Um, Kenna's on the line. And um, for right now, it's only $2 a month. You can get all sorts of bonus content um, and we have some exciting things coming down the pipeline for Patreon only. And if you get in now, it is still $2 a month because um, we might have to raise that in the near future. That's true. We talked to some like um, fancy marketing people for my book and then they were like, what do you what do you really want to do like with your life? Like, what do you want? And I was like, I would really just love to do the podcast full time. And they were like, okay, your Patreon's $2 a month. You should raise that to five. And I was like, oh my God, that's so much money. But then I was really thinking, I'm like, what's the difference between two and five bucks? It's still... It's still a cup of coffee. It's still a cup of coffee. And especially if we add more content. Because right now, each of the bonus episodes is only a dollar per episode. But if we made more money on the podcast, then we could like do more bonus episodes. And five bucks a month would totally be worth it. Yeah. And we could get better gear exactly yeah yeah so yeah just do more stuff so for now it's two bucks a month we might raise it so yeah you might want to get in on that now yeah but um to starting tonight actually after we record our regular episode we're also going to record one of the two most requested bonus episodes of all time which is like an intro to marks yep which is going to be interesting we're going to go over the 10 point kind of program marks laid out for the um, like transitionary phase into socialism. So that'll be interesting. We'll go through the 10 points, you know. Obviously, uh, Marx also said every country would be different, but we're just gonna break them all down and do a little explainer. And we're gonna bring on David. Yes. By a popular demand. Everybody wanted another episode with David. So David's gonna come on and help us yeah. do that too, which will be fun. So if you want access to that episode, our Patreon's where to go, and it is patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. Yeah. Boop, boop. Okay. So, thank you for listening to us aggressively advertise our monetization to you. <laughs> Money's nice. I like money. Kenna, do you like money? Yes, I do. I, um, I love buying stuff. I also love buying stuff. I would like to buy more stuff. I would like, I like buying the stuff I need to live. Right, right, right. When I say buy more stuff... It's usually just food. Yeah, for me, it's like, oh, I, coffee. Um, Coffee's nice. Uh, you know, you know what's funny? I would say that I could use another, like, more massages. But I say this because my doctor actually said that I should get more massages. So it's medically necessary. Yeah, I think massages are medically necessary for most people. <laughs> I think that, like, communism means we just do one big massage train in a circle. <laughs> I think that's what that means. I like that I'm just shilling because I want like a massage. <laughs> but so I've been really needing one. My... And your muscles are broken. Yeah, my muscles are broken. You have a special medical broken muscle. But literally, diagnosis. yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know. So it'd be nice to do more of the podcast. It would be nice. It would be nice. Um. Okay. So transitioning into the podcast we're doing right now. Yes. All right. 
today, Kenna, we are starting off the podcast with a question, like always, but I'm going to say this might be the most difficult question I've ever asked you. Okay. All right. So, no pressure or anything, but can you define a woman? Oh, geez. (laughs) Um, My definition is if someone says they're a woman, they're a woman. Yeah, that's pretty much all I could come up with, too. Like, the best I could come up with was, like, someone who identifies with their culture's common expression of femininity, but then that was, like, recursive because femininity by default is linked to a definition of womanhood. Yeah, I just say, like, if you're, if you say you're a woman or a chick, you are. Right. Do you like how I just keep saying chick? Well, that's because you identify as a chick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like that for you. I really like that. Once I get to 80, I'm just going to be an old bitch. No. (laughs) No. The chick to old bitch pipeline. Yes, yes, yes. People don't talk about this enough. um, And somewhere in my 70s, I hope to have um, a slut era, but we'll see. I think I I see this for you. (laughs) I think you can be a bitchy old slut. If you want. I think you can combo attack it. Yeah. And somehow, I'm yeah. So, but right now, I've just been like, yeah, I'm just, I'm a chick. And lately, I've been like, I'm just a chick from Colorado. Colorado chick. I don't know fucking anything. It's freeing. It's freeing. No, no offense to other people from Colorado. No, if you are also a chick from Colorado, Kenna is saying you know nothing. You know nothing in this (laughs) world. (laughs) No! I'm the only chick. Wait, then I have main character syndrome. Right, you can't be the only chick. There Ah! has to be more. But yeah, I would just say, you know, uh, if you are one, you, you are... Maybe it's, like, that um, guy in Congress who was, like, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Maybe I it's, s- like, that. Maybe, like, if you just know I you're would a woman, say- you just are a woman. Oh, like, oh, if you know it yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gotcha. I was, I like, I thought tell. you meant for other people. No. I was, like, mm-hmm. yeah. I think it's just one of those, it's, like, you're, like, yeah, uh, I think I am. Right, right. And then we just accept it. We're just, like, yes than you are but it is one of those things that's super hard to define right because like we know it's just an expression of gender uh and we obviously know gender is different than biological sex because gender is like socially constructed which basically just means we made it up and we're making it up all the time and it's constantly changing all around us and our definitions are like in part how we perceive them and like how society perceives them it's like not a concrete tangible thing you know yeah it's not like a rock. You point to it and you're like, that's a rock. And everyone's like, yeah. Yeah. And I would say the pornography <laughs> is apt because what some people consider pornography is different. Yeah. Um, I'm really upset, actually, because I have spent my whole life thinking that it is really uncomfortable when regular movies have sex scenes in them. Not because I'm puritanical, because I'm just not sure how horny I'm supposed to be in front of people I'm not usually horny with. And then I get really uncomfortable, and I'm like, how horny am I supposed to be, like, with my buddies sitting in the room right now? I'm so stressed out. But now there's been this resurgence on Twitter of, like, discourse about how regular movies shouldn't have nudity in them, but it's this very, like, pro-haze code puritanical thing. And I'm so upset because, like, I almost had my moment for people to relate to me on this, but then they just took it in this really, like, right-wing trad wife protect the children way we're you know i love movies and sometimes you know i will say i think nudity makes it better that's my hot take i think that's good 
for you. HBO shows must have nudity. Okay, Skinamax for sure. Yeah, like if you are on an, if you are doing an HBO style show, I think that's what makes it the show. You gotta just have nudity for no fucking reason. Like, yeah, I mean, I think I could accept it if it was like just like a little funny. Like if you just saw like one titty, but not both. <laughs> about the first season of White Lotus where they're like inspecting Steve Zahn's balls. Yes. Yes. Like I was like this is amazing. This is like nudity. Yeah. This is like acceptable nudity in yes. this HBO show. Well I recently watched for the first time that movie that has Rose McGowan who we know has some bad politics. Um, Rose McGowan's in it though when she's a teenager and we don't know she has bad politics yet so it's more socially acceptable and it's called like the devil within or like the devil inside and she plays like this teenage seductress who tries to seduce all her teachers because like got like adult man like wet train fantasy yeah oh Um, no (laughs) but she like dresses super super cute so I was like I'm gonna watch this movie just for the outfits um and she has like a weird best friend who also dresses really cute but the teacher that she's seducing has this girlfriend and this girlfriend is in this movie for a combined total of six minutes and five and a half minutes it's just her boobs well okay, but at this different sounds, times this sounds like the rose mcgowan version of the crush oh with alicia silverstone i haven't seen it but i'm confident it's the same movie yeah yeah, ba- yeah totally so okay whatever i digress um basically the woman thing back to the woman thing we as a society just decided, like, what a woman is and what cultural things accompany, like, being womanly. And there are variations, obviously, from person to person, like, how we interpret them. But there are some standard cultural tropes about feminine gender expression that most people would agree exist. But still, that's just, like, most people. That's not all people. And it also changes from culture to culture. And it changes even within cultures over time, right? Like, within Western white cultural definitions of womanhood, we've seen a lot of things change over time to go from masculine to feminine. Like, things that used to be considered manly are now considered girly. So, like, high heels. You know about this, right? No. Oh, yeah. High heels were, like, depending on your source, they were either made for butchers to keep their feet from getting too bloody, which that one doesn't quite make sense to me. But some other sources are, like, no, they were made for Persian soldiers in the 10th century to help improve their accuracy when they were, like, riding a horse and shooting arrows because they, like, kept them on the horse balanced. I I don't know. I've been on a horse twice and it was a crisis each time. Um, But what we do know is that by the 17th century, King Louis XIV was like handing out high-heeled shoes to every man in his court and cabinet to be like, yeah, these are going to make you look tall and intimidating. So they used to be this like macho thing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and the wigs. Yeah, the wigs. Very masculine to wear a wig. Um, Also pink used to be like a boy's color. I I know that from, uh, yeah, because it used to be pink would be for little boys. Right, exactly. Um, Also yoga was a thing not invented in the West, obviously, but invented by men for other men. But here in the West, most men think it's too feminine to do. So it's just like a girly thing here to do yoga. Yeah. Uh, Skirts also used to be worn in battle. So men had more room to move around. Well, I I think about the Scottish. The kilts. The kilts, yes. Uh, Braveheart. Yes. Are those your people, the, the Scots? Or I am the... I am uh, part Scottish, I yes. think you were, yes. I think those I are your like people. I'm like half Scottish. Yeah. You seem Scottish. I mean, there's a, there's a town in Scotland named after my family. Oh, yeah, that's right. We gotta go there. <laughs> Bonus episode. So then also Uggs, you know, they were originally for like surfer bro dudes. 
Oh. But then what started happening is their girlfriend started stealing them all and wearing them, and then they became, like, girly by association. And then by the time we reached middle school, every hot girl was wearing Uggs with a denim miniskirt, and it was all over for the men. They, they couldn't have them. I mean, I have been seeing more, like, skater dudes wearing Uggs. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. They're taking it back. The men are taking like, it back. Like, I saw some Jankos with some Uggs the other day, and I was like, wow. I think that's revolutionary. Maybe with some silver tabs, but they were baggy. Yeah, yeah, that's cute. Also, crop tops. Oh. In the 80s, that was like a football player. Oh, thing. yeah. Like, if you watch those, like, 80s movies where, like, the the nerd is, like, in a competition with the jock guy. And, like, his girlfriend is in love with the nerd. But the, the jock uh, jerk always wears uh, a crop top. It's always a little and tiny sh- and, and hot pants. Yeah. It's a good look. Bring back men dressing slutty. Yeah. I think we should do that. Um, we can add that to your old bitch slut era (laughs) men in your age range just try to get them to be slutty too dress sluttier also shaving razors originally made for men Uh, obviously like people of all genders use them now but i would say women are expected to control a lot more of their body hair to fit into social norms using a razor Uh so you know that's a little gray area but uh, also makeup used to be worn mostly by rich men Mm. and the name ashley or the name kim yeah. Used to be men's names. I remember even in the 80s because my cousin was born and she was named Ashley and it was like a really popular girl's name in the 80s. But I remember there was a character who was like the heartthrob on, I don't know, like Gone with, no, Days of the, Has the World Turns. One of the soap operas. I don't fucking remember their names. But he, he, like, he was the hot guy and his name was Ashley. And I was like, that's a girl's name. Yeah, no, um, my dad was originally named Kim. Oh, really? Yeah. They was changed- it short for anything? No. Whoa, that's cool. Um, but they changed it, like, a week after he was born, and I can't remember why. <clears throat> well, he could have been, like, a relic from this era. Yeah, because, yeah, no, he was like, oh, Kim is a cowboy name. Cowboy Kim. That's kind of cute. <laughs> I like that. Um, also, wearing, like, just stockings. Like, you know how, like, today you might wear just leggings? Yes. So people used to wear, like, just stockings, and back in the early Renaissance day young fashionable man and we're just like i'm not wearing skirts or robes anymore i'm just wearing my super tight fitting stockings out <laughs> sassy and they looked really good and that was like a dude thing and now it's not a dude thing anymore which we need to bring back that too like mind dressing sluttier i think should include just wearing stockings as pants like let's try that also purses that was just a way for men to carry around all their money because <laughs> they had it we didn't have it nobody but men had it um also, like, Pilates originally created to rehabilitate war veterans. Hmm. Very interesting. Now considered very feminine. And even the term girl used to be spelled G-Y-R-L and used to be gender neutral. It just meant, like, a young person. Interesting. Yeah. And then on the flip side, obviously, we had things that used to be, you know, um, the opposite way, right? We had things that were, like, girly and now they're, like, more masculine. So Old Spice which I think I was being, like, a hyper-masculine deodorant company. That's, like, a very masculine deodorant in my head. Like, it's not as much as Axe, obviously. Yeah. But it's one step down. But it was originally founded as a women's scent inspired by the developer's mother's potpourri, which I totally oh. forgot potpourri existed. Oh. That was, like, a thing. Oh, my God. Walk into any, like, thrift store in the Midwest. <laughs> 
Also, wristwatches were originally designed for women because they didn't have pockets for pocket watches. Oh. So you put it on your little You rock. can't give the women the pockets or else they'll rise up. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> women can't, they can't carry things around with them. I think about that with the purses. You can't it's let true. them have anything on them. Nothing they'll stick a gun in. You don't want any part of that. <laughs> Uh, computer programming, originally a job intended for women. I knew that, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Automatic cars, because women were just too stupid <laughs> just to stupid to try. They were like, this car looks pretty nice, but can you make one the missus can operate? Well, okay, I hate to admit it, I cannot drive a stick shift. Okay, I can drive a stick shift. All right, I can do it. I, can I do it. always stall making a left-hand turn. Wow. Um, why just a left-hand turn? Mm, I think I get um, stressed out, and then I just I just panic, and okay. then I stall. I respect that for you. I think that's good. Also, the Ford Mustang, that was originally a girly car, because it was a car with a trunk big enough to fit your groceries in, and they marketed it like, you can match your lipstick to well, your car. You know what's funny? When I was in high school, I had a Mustang. You did? It was not a nice one. It was like, if you look up like the worst years of Mustang, and it was 1985. Oh, that's pretty good. I was going to guess 92. No, it was 85. It leaked oil everywhere. Right, right, right. And uh, it was so dangerous to drive in this. It was just the oh, shit. Oh, snow. Because it's like wow. rear wheel drive. Yeah, that's real bad. And so... Like, it sounds fancy, but it actually was, like, a piece of shit. Okay. I will say that one time I got stuck in a blizzard coming over the mountain range to get into L.A. from Fresno. The grapevine. Um, There was this, like, like, just so much joy in my heart, right? Because we all got stuck in this blizzard. It was, like, instantaneous. And everybody with a BMW had real wheel, rear wheel drive. Very hard to say. I know. And all of their wheels were just spinning. And they were trying so hard to get out. And you could see in their faces, they were like, not me. I can't get stuck here. And none of them could move. And they were spiraling everywhere. And I saw these people get out in, like, business clothes with, like, cardboard boxes from their Amazon packages trying to, like, shovel the snow out from under their BMWs. I saw this one car manage to make it to, like, this off-ramp, but then just slowly slide along the ice in this, like, really anticlimactic, slow, like, back down off the on-ramp. And just, like, this feeling that came over me when my, like, hybrid Kia, like, my used hybrid Kia was like, excuse me, can you get out of my way? I'm going around you. Beep, beep, you know? It felt so good. I mean, now I have a Subaru, so I would just be like driving over the cars. Yeah, you could drive. On I'd, top be like of a, I'd be like I'd be like a monster truck. You would, yeah, you totally would. You should <laughs> lift the soup. <laughs> oh, I could lift the the, the strawberry as the I call strawberry. it. Strawberry, yeah, you should lift the strawberry. <laughs> I want to lift the Kia, and I googled. <laughs> so I googled it to be like, has anybody ever lifted a Kia Nero? And oh. all these forms were like, why the fuck would you lift a Kia Nero when other people ask? And I was like, well, now I have to lift the Kia Nero because I've never seen a picture of a lifted Kia Nero. So I want to lift it and get big tires on it. But then somebody was like, it's going to bring your gas mileage down. And I'm so proud of my gas mileage that I'm like, I don't know if I can make this compromise. Yeah. But anyway, okay. So um, off of the cars, also holding the door open for people. Apparently, originally, women were supposed to hold the door open for men so the men could duck inside like secret agents and check to see if there's danger in the building. Okay. I know this was like a social custom that I found. On oh. the, I don't know. And then also filtered cigarettes, originally for women, but then the Marlboro Man came out. 
and he cowboy kimmed up a storm and was just mask as fuck and everyone's like god those filtered cigarettes are so fucking masculine and it became a man thing wow yeah so basically we're just kind of making this shit up as we go kind of seems like that's it. what i learned i mean yeah i mean there's what society tells you and then there's like you know how you actually feel Right. Okay. So that brings me kind of like a secondary question. How do you feel, Kenna? You're a woman, right? You consider yourself a woman. Yeah. A chick. I'm a chick. I'm a chick, right? I'm a chick. Right. So one of the more, I don't know, it's not interesting. I was going to say more interesting things. It's not interesting. So I I think of myself as being non-binary. Um, and that's kind of been a journey for me, right? Because like I never felt like a girl growing up the way other girls seemed to. I had these like distinct memories of failing to perform gender correctly and it being like this huge source of stress in my life when I was a child um like I think I told you about for Halloween I always wanted to be something scary and then I'd go to school dressed scary and all the other little girls would be like princesses and then I would realize I had not performed gender correctly and I would like freak out about it and then like one year I was like a scary ghost and I was like oh no I did it wrong and then this teacher had to help me change my scary ghost costume into like a little nurse costume and used like a red crayon to draw crosses on it so I could feel like I was a girl with the other little girls um but yeah this was just always like a weird thing like I just didn't feel like I was performing gender correctly my whole life and then also in high school you know like I hung out my friend group was queer we were all a bunch of gay people I knew I was bisexual but like nobody really talked about being non-binary like we didn't have that in our like language yet you know so I would always struggle with the ideas of gender and then maybe when I was like 24 I was like okay you know what the only problem here that I'm encountering is pronouns like I really wouldn't care that much if people weren't constantly trying to like put people in a box based on their gender to use pronouns just to talk about them so I um invented basically my own neo pronoun without knowing what neo pronouns were and I invented this and I told my friends I was like we just need something different the he and the she it's not working we can't do it I didn't have the foresight to just realize they would be an easy way to go so I just invented my own neo pronoun which is fine I like neo pronouns they're very cool mine was not that smooth mine was a little clunky and it was puppy kitten snack attack and I told one of my friends, like, I can't do it. I can't do the she and the he thing anymore. I'm doing a new one. I made up my own. It's Puppy Kitten Snack Attack. And then my best friend responded, and I believe almost verbatim, her response via text was, I would not want to have sex with Puppy Kitten Snack Attack, being like, this is not a sexy pronoun. Like, you can't call yourself this. Nobody will ever want to have sex with you. And I really liked that because that it appealed to my slutty nature. And I was like, I need a hot pronoun. I can't. I can't be puppy kitten snack attack. It's not hot. Um, but yeah, so the next major thing I realized as I got older and I was like, I'm going to work on myself, right, um, is that all of the things I could relate to when people talked about, like, personal growth were men talking about deconstructing their own toxic masculinity, which was really interesting. So I was like, everything I want to fix in my personality is what men talk about they want to fix in regards to toxic masculinity in themselves. So I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I don't know. Like, yeah, I too am like too defensive, quick to anger, physically aggressive, need to assert my dominance all the time. But just realizing those things led me to realize that my like personality in the whole does relate more to like socially constructed ideas of masculinity than femininity, like including good, including bad, whatever. So yeah, so I struggled with all this. 
And some other more personal shit, right? Having to do with my idea of myself as a woman, including like having a uterus and childbearing stuff. Until finally one day someone on the internet just asked me straight up like, hey, do you identify as a woman? And I realized in the moment like, nah, I don't. Like I don't, I don't think I'm that. Like I do when it's rhetorically convenient to win an argument. You know, like, as a woman, well, I'm a woman. But in reality, I'm like, no, I don't think I've ever really identified with that. So, yeah, now I'm just like, oh, shit, you can just say you're non-binary. You can just be like, yeah, I'm non-binary. I don't fucking know. And that's a thing. And that's really cool because we, like, didn't have that language floating around in a prevalent way when we were growing up. Like, mm-hmm. when's the first time you met somebody who was non-binary? Not till my 20s. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, so to this day, you know, I'm fine with whatever pronouns people want to use, actually. It's, like, more freeing. I'm more comfortable with pronouns now because I'm, like, uh, gender, to me, is largely just this socially constructed thing people project onto each other. And that's not how everybody relates to gender. That's just how I do personally. But I wouldn't say that I identify as a woman, even though I don't care if people use she, her pronouns for me. I've had experiences women have had. I've been socialized as a woman. I've had experiences men have had. Girl is a mood. Whatever. So... All of this is just this interesting thing I was thinking about and gender is just like this big mess to me and I've always tried to kind of struggled to navigate it without realizing that that's what was going on in my life. So I was thinking about all this and I decided that this would obviously be a great topic for today's episode. So today's episode is going to be all about gender. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Big one. <laughs> it's a big one. It's a big one. It's a big one. We're going to make it kind of chill, though. It's going to be like a chill podcast about gender. It's not going to be that big of a deal. I promise. <clears throat> okay. But you can't talk about gender, I don't think, without talking about biological sex first. And one of the most common points of confusion you hear when people encounter the concept of gender is that they will conflate it with biological sex, right? You hear people do this all the time. Yes. Yeah. So in our society, that might mean saying something like women give birth, which we know doesn't make sense, right? Because 19% of uh, people who are biologically female experience infertility or like that's nearly one in five people. Yeah. I mean, or like if you reach menopause. If you reach menopause, would you just stop being a woman? Like, no, that doesn't make sense. Um, You also hear some people be like, well, anybody born with a penis is a man and anybody born with a vagina is a woman, right? And that's also pretty flawed thinking. That's biological sex. That's not gender. Um, And there's a few reasons, right? Like, one, biological sex is a different thing than gender completely, even though the two do interact with each other. Uh, Number two, it denies the fact that there's a whole lot more to biological sex characteristics than just a penis or a vagina, And number three, it denies the fact that sex itself is a spectrum. And it's not even binary. Like, biological sex is a spectrum. Yeah, they came across that uh, in the Olympics. Oh, really? Yes, because they were like, okay, because, like, yeah, all the, they were like, we are going to test for uh, men's and women's. And a lot of people, they're like, oh, like, like, cis women were like, oh, well, this says you're not, this this test says that you're not a woman. And they were like, what? What did they test? Like hormones? Yes. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. So biological sex refers to different biological and physiological characteristics that people might have. And that includes things like chromosomes, genes, internal and external sex organs, hormones, and secondary sex characteristics. Right? So these things also can contradict each other in terms of how we think about them and how we think about sex. So for example, while biologically typical females tend to have an XX chromosome kind of situation and biologically typical males tend to have XY chromosomes, someone with XY chromosomes can still be born with a vagina. That's called Swear syndrome or Swire syndrome. Hmm. Right. 
And on top of that, the Y chromosome holds roughly 340 genes, but the X chromosome holds like 1,500, meaning that the difference that a Y chromosome has on your overall genetic makeup is actually relatively small, comparatively speaking, to begin mm -hmm. with. Or when we look at hormones, for example, people tend to think that having more testosterone is associated with being biologically male. But people who appear to be biologically female in the traditional sense can have high levels of testosterone, like people with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yes. Yeah. And there's this um, author, Anne Fausto Sterling, who's like a renowned biology and sex and gender expert. And she says, by birth, the baby has five layers of sex. So she explains it this way. She's like, layer one is chromosomal sex, the combination of X and Y chromosomes fetuses receive when an egg and a sperm join. Layer two is fetal gonadal sex, which is the testes or ovaries or some combination. Number three is fetal hormonal sex, which is resulting in hormones released by the gonads. Layer four is internal reproductive sex. So that would be like reproductive elements that we don't see on the outside, like your vas deferens, prostate, maybe uterus, cervix, or fallopian tubes. And the layer five is the external reproductive sex, which is like a penis and scrotum or vagina, clitoris, any variation of those things. And Fausto Sterling says, these layers do not always agree with each other. So just like you were saying, you have people who are like, yeah, I'm biologically female. And then they go to the Olympics and then they test them for like their hormone balance. And it's like, well, according to this, you're not because there's not one way to decide if somebody is biologically male or female. This <clears throat> is why we tend to classify biological sex as a spectrum ranging between typical biological male and typical biological female with intersex people who share different combinations of these characteristics falling somewhere in the middle. And the category for what we consider intersex is actually really, really large and diverse. Like there are people with persistent Mullerian duct syndrome who have male internal and external genital structures, but also have a uterus and fallopian tubes. Hmm. Or there are people with Klinefelter syndrome who have male sex organs, but low testosterone, small testes, infertility, reduced facial hair, and breast development. There's also people who have androgen insensitivity syndrome who have ambiguous genitals as well as potentially larger amounts of testosterone, but also still might develop breasts. There are people who have mixed gonadal dysgenesis who might have one testy and any range of male or female ambiguous genitals, but low estrogen and infertility. There are people who have congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is an enlarged clitoris, fused labia, and short vagina, but otherwise typical ovaries, uterus, and cervix. There are people who have XX testicular disorder who are closer to female on the biological spectrum but have small testes and male genitals combined with low testosterone and infertility. There are people with Turner syndrome, which is typically uh, female internal and external genital structures, but impaired ovarian development and absent or limited puberty-like development and also infertility. And these are just a few ways that people can fall on the spectrum of biological sex. And there's this really cool chart um, here that I found that we can also post on our Patreon showing some elements of the biological sex spectrum. But it's really complex and there are so many different ways people fall on it. And the examples I gave are just a few. And this reminded me of this quote from this queer novel I liked a lot as a teenager called Lockpick Pornography, which was written by Joey Como, where the main character says, sometimes a baby is born and it's a boy, and sometimes it's a girl, sure, but sometimes a doctor is in the background behind one of those pull-around curtains flipping a coin. Sometimes the mother says, is it a boy or a girl? And the doctor really does say, yes. Whoa. A quote from the book. Yeah, it's like an old joke. You know... You know how I learned about this actually hmm. was a daytime TV talk show when I was like homesick one day at school and like I was like 
really young, like first or second grade. And it blew my mind because I was like, wait, like there's not just like boys and girls. Yeah. And then, yeah, I thought about that for a year. And I feel like it was something like, I feel like weirdly it was like progressive at this time, but it was like something like Maury Povich. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's an element to talk shows where they get kind of like, freak show, look at the freaks. Yeah, but I remember this one being a very serious episode yeah. and then being like, oh, well, this thing happened to me and it wasn't fair and blah, blah, blah. And I thought about it forever. And I was like, that's so weird because it seemed like a cheesy daytime talk show. But that's like the, the first time I ever heard of anything like that. But I still think about that. Yeah, I think that's like really cool, though, when there's like people who are comfortable and willing to put themselves out there and talk about their experiences being intersex. It's like super helpful because it can do a lot to deconstruct those like biological arguments that like there's two sexes so there's two yeah, genders and, and you're I, like well there's not at all I you know and I've thought about that since a really young age and I think that that's a little bit why I've always like questioned when like adults had like like the little girls are over here doing this and the boys are doing this and I was just like but we do like I always like kind of questioned the sometimes you know like the yeah yeah you know but yeah, sorry to think about, I'm like, dang, like. <laughs> Maury came through for you. I don't know if it was Maury. One of them. <laughs> One of them. One of them. Um, but yeah, this is where we get into designations that people experience where you hear people say like, well, I was assigned male at birth or I was assigned female at birth because male and female are too narrow of a designation for the biological sex spectrum on the whole, which is where visibly, uh, visibility for intersex people becomes super important because people who are born intersex, very often the doctors will just be like, we're deciding you're close to being biologically male, so we're calling you male, and then sometimes families will just raise these kids as male, which is happening less and less as we have more visibility for intersex people. More parents are understanding that they can raise an intersex child. But I think especially like back in the day, you didn't really hear about that happening that often. Lots of people were just kind of pushed into one category based on what looked the closest to the doctor. And it's actually really really prevalent for people to be intersex like if you had to guess what percent of the population was intersex what would you guess uh 10 oh okay that's pretty high but it's more than two percent okay two percent i was like wait that's a lot yeah that's a lot (laughs) um but still two percent is pretty high too so 1.7 ish to two percent depending on your source of the population is thought to have at least one intersex trait which could be hormonal chromosomal genetic could be visible in your reproductive traits it could be invisible uh, and that means that the definition of man or woman, if we based it on penis or vagina, makes absolutely no sense for every one in 200 people from the jump. So when we apply the more comprehensive understanding of biological sex beyond just does it look like what I think a dick looks like, we see that it affects roughly a one in every 58 people just for the visible part of it. Hmm. Yeah. So since I'm bad at visualizing groups, I have to think about this in terms of classroom size. Like growing up, we had roughly 30 kids in every classroom, right? So this means that one kid in every two classrooms would not have fit the biological binary idea of sex. Whoa. I know, right? Pretty significant. So when you think back to all the kids being separated out, it's like there were kids being separated into boy and girl groups, like in your childhood, that would not have fit the traditional, like, equating biological sex with gender version of a boy or a girl Hmm. right so um you know it's as common to be intersex as it is to be born with red hair or green eyes whoa yes 
My sister and my dad have green eyes. I have green eyes. Oh, you do? Why yeah. did I always think they were hazel? No, they're green. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow, I feel like a bad friend now. No, it's okay. My mom and dad both have green eyes. <laughs> um, it doesn't matter though. But that means also, because there's a difference between the people who have at least one intersex trait, like uh, one in 200 people down to like, oh, it's one in every 58 people, sorry, who have at least one intersex trait and one in 200 people who have it visibly like from a genitalia perspective. That means that there's a huge amount of people who could be born intersex and not even realize that, sometimes for a very, very long time. Like you were talking about people testing who had no idea that they had an intersex trait until they were trying to go to the Olympics, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's estimated that just 0.5% of people have clinically identifiable sexual or reproductive variations, meaning most intersex people, yeah, would probably not be able to tell that they were intersex just from how their genitals looked. So for the people born with visibly different genitalia, there is, however, this increased risk of parents and doctors proceeding with elective surgeries to help, quote unquote, normalize their infant's genitalia, either based on homophobia or transphobia, like people equate being intersex with being gay, which might not necessarily be a thing, but also how we think about gay is very tied up in like a gender binary system. Um, but it also could just be from like a fear that if their child grows up intersex, it will somehow hinder the child's life where they'll be ostracized. <clears throat> so one person described um one person who was intersex described having surgeries without their consent to make their genitals look more typically female um that ended up giving them soreness pain and post-traumatic stress disorder for the rest oh. of their lives another person who's intersex says she was born with proximal hypospadias and underwent an unsuccessful cosmetic surgery as a child that left her with complications um that then made her suffer from depression and she had this like longing to be what she considered normal and it wasn't you know, until college that she realized she was intersex. But by that time, even as a teenager at 17, she'd had surgery yet again. It left her more thorough complications. But when she finally realized like, oh, I'm not broken, I'm intersex. She said it helped undo years of internalized shame and healing from this like harmful messaging that like her body was broken and had to be fixed. And mm -hmm. she was like, my body's not broken and it doesn't need to be fixed. I'm not a man or a woman by these traditional biological markers. I'm intersex and that's okay. Another intersex person described having visibly different genitalia that he fought for years to conceal and also said he went surgeries and ended up with really bad infections as a result, just trying to deal with this in a way that he thought would be more socially acceptable. Another intersex person described having her gonads removed at age 15 without understanding what was happening to her. Then she was given estrogen to help start her period and develop breasts, uh, the latter of which never really happened. And it wasn't until she was 11 years old that she found out she had XY chromosomes and an intersex variation called mixed gonadal uh, dysgenesis. Another intersex person described having internal testes that were removed when she was 14 and no other internal reproductive organs. And she was assigned female at birth and raised as a woman during puberty is when she encountered more traditionally male traits like a dropped voice. And even when uh, surgery isn't undertaken, there's also a sometimes like social pressure for parents, again, to raise their intersex children as either or either a boy or a girl, a binary system which many intersex children really struggle to fit into. So one intersex person was describing growing up and finding their Adam's apple at the same time they got their first period. And they were like, yeah, I couldn't wear swimsuits because I had an enlarged clitoris and it gave me like a bulge that the other little girls didn't have. And this person said they were socialized as a girl and until middle school, it, that's when they really started to be like, wait, I can just say I'm intersex. Like I'm just intersex, I'm not a girl and that's okay. Um, another person 
talked about being assigned female at birth but having different genitalia than people typically assigned at fe uh, female at birth, like having no vaginal opening. And when he spoke with a specialist in adolescence, he learned that he had late pubertal progression and a mixed karyotype of XX and XY as well as ovotestes. <clears throat> so a lot of these kids are not being told from the jump and they're not being raised as intersex. They have to kind of figure it out as they go. And it's this like really traumatic, difficult process because our society is set up so binary. Like we don't allow an option for people who very biologically commonly are neither of those things. Like mm -hmm. 2% is huge. That's a huge percent of our population. Um, another person describes being assigned female at birth, but then realizing they weren't like typical females in quotes at puberty when they didn't develop breasts, but instead just develop thicker body and facial hair. And then doctors started pushing hormone blockers on them, but they were like, I don't want to medically change my body. So now they just embrace themselves as an intersex individual. And at like 21, they like realized what was going on. They came out as intersex and they were like, yes, this is who I am and are really happy just living their life that way. And even when people do fit the typical presentations of being biologically male or female, that still doesn't necessarily explain their relationship with gender, which takes into account cultural and social experiences as well. So if sex is used to categorize people as biologically male or female or intersex on the spectrum, gender comes into play because it describes the socially constructed roles, behaviors, expressions, and expectations of people who fall into these categories. Like the term woman might describe the socially constructed way we expect people who are biologically female to act. The term man then might describe the socially constructed way we expect people who are biologically male to act. So man and woman would be terms regarding your gender while male and female would be terms regarding sex, right? That makes sense. And on top of being socially imposed, these expressions of gender can also reflect how people personally identify with and relate to others in the world. And usually it's some combination of both. Which is why, just like with biological sex being a spectrum, gender is also considered a spectrum. Um, some people even identify off the spectrum completely, though, and reject the notion of the spectrum altogether. And how people relate to gender is extremely diverse and complex and difficult to pinpoint in some, like, comprehensive way. It's a personal experience. So, for example, you could have a woman who was assigned female at birth, but actually be biologically intersex and not even know it, right? Or you could have a man who might be biologically typically male, biologically typically female, or intersex. We expect because of social convention that men will be biologically typically male, and we describe people whose biological sex matches up with their gender in that socially conventional way as being cisgender. But still, that's just like a social expectation. So basically, when you're born, there's a good chance your doctor is assigning you not just a biological sex, but also a socially correlated gender role to fill based on that. But very obviously, not every man is going to have a clear-cut male biology. Heck, not every person even assigned male at birth has clear-cut male biology. It's complicated, and these things intersect with each other in complex ways as a result. So we call anyone whose gender doesn't match up with the socially expected correlating biological assignment transgender, right? And there are lots of different expressions of what it means to be transgender, too. Like there are people who are agender, there are people who are bigender, there are people who are gender fluid or gender queer or non-binary, which also can be an umbrella term for different types of gender expressions, including bigender or gender fluid or gender queer. Uh, there's omnigender, there's two-spirit. Some people will identify as a transgender man or a transgender woman. There's all these different experiences because people live their lives in lots of different ways. And all of this means you might have somebody, for example, who's a non-binary person who might be biologically male, biologically female, or intersex as well. Um, regardless of what it is, though, like, 
gender can be socially constructed, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have, like, super real consequences in everybody's life. So as Fausta Sterling, that, like, expert in biology and sex and gender pointed out, deciding what sex a baby is, uh, which is usually only done based on that one indicator that's the outward display of external genitalia, which is just one-fifth of the baby's actual sex layering, According to her, she's like, look, that initiates a social response that begins the gender socialization of the newborn, like Mm. instantly. And as she says, the social response to a baby is intense. She says it's like gender fortification. We have decided based on that baby's genitals that it's a man or a woman. And now all of society is going to respond to it accordingly using our arsenal of social expectations for how a man or a woman behaves. And scientists show that even parents who say they're not actively gender stereotyping their children are actually still guiding them towards this gendered behavior. Like parents will choose different films and books and commercial products like toys for boys and girls, often choosing stereotypes like dolls for their daughters or trains or dinosaurs for their sons. Mothers have also been shown to respond less negatively to a son's risky or disruptive behavior than they would to a daughter's. And they're also less likely to encourage a son's pro-social behavior, which endorses this idea that boys are just risk takers and challenging, but girls are supposed to be nice to others. When researchers also observed parents reading books with their, like, toddlers, they found that mothers tended to comment more positively about drawings of children doing stereotypical activities than about those doing the opposite based on their gender. So, like, if there was, like, a drawing of a little girl with a doll, the mom would be more likely to be like, look how cute the little girl is with her doll, versus if there was a drawing of, like, I don't know, a little girl was a boy thing. Playing with a football, they would just kind of skip over that. And I thought that was really interesting. Also, fathers commented even more than mothers in this kind of thing to confirm gender stereotypes. Also, fathers with two boys made fewer negative comments about drawings of boys being mean to each other than drawings of girls being mean. (laughs) So, like, if a dad had two boys, he would, like, see a drawing of girls being mean. He'd be like, oh, these girls are being mean. But two boys, he'd just be like, ah, it's just boys. In the same study, also, both mothers and fathers were more likely to label sad children as female and angry children as male. (laughs) Even though the children were drawn in a completely gender-neutral way. Yeah, yeah, which probably makes sense why I was like, so much of my expression of my problems with myself are masculine traits. uh." But it's just like, I'm just hostile, you know? I'm just like hostile and aggressive. And society's like, that's dude shit. Well, you know, it reminds me, me and my little sister were very cute little children. Oh, yeah, Um, you were like children of the corn cute. You were like little blonde, like, (laughs) children of the corn, little blonde children. But my mom was like, my mom would like dress us up and like, this was the 80s. So it was like little dresses and like stuff like that. But me and she's like, I just remember every time someone would come over the house, like, because me and my sister are two years apart. I'm older. (laughs) So we're like five and three, just having like burping and farting contests and throwing (laughs) each other around the room in our little dresses. And my mom was like mortified. I love that. Your mom was like, my daughters will gender. And you were like, kind of. Well, my dad was like, yeah. (laughs) My dad thought it was funny, but my mom was like horrified she wasn't horrified she was just embarrassed yes she's like i wanted you to be cute 80s children (laughs) parents also will convey like these indirect messages during early childhood about things like how the household's organized which is interesting Mm. to me too like they might model stereotypical male and female behavior in the way that they divide work care and housework because 
Children also will generally identify more with the parent of their own sex. The kids will then be motivated to imitate that parent's interests and activities. So like if you are in a house that has like an unequal balance of work based on gender, your kid will internalize that and be like, that's just how it goes in the house, yeah. which I thought was super interesting. Um, I was raised in my earliest years with a single dad, so I missed out on all that. Oh, I know this one from my mom because my mom was just always like, why do I always have to clean everything? Yeah. Um, research has also shown that parents with stronger gender stereotype beliefs are more likely to parent in gendered ways. Like the primary source of social learning in early childhood is just interacting with your parents, right? And research referred to researchers refer to vicarious social learning as being like when you're talking about your own actions and behaviors, children will then pick up on them. So if a parent has a gender evaluation, the children will pick up on that vicariously. So children will notice any social models of gendered behavior that they see around them. Children will then use those ideas and expectations and apply them in similar situations in their own life. So for example, uh, a little girl who has imitated her mother doing housework is more likely to assume that housework is for girls when they're like playing a game and then assume that chores are for girls in other settings. Uh, I don't know what this says about me because when I played games with my Barbies, the only game I played was Suicide Barbie where I came up with creative ways for them to die. But I also was really into horror movies as a child. So I think this is where this oh, came from. Oh, we would always make, like, I think I saw this like on TikTok and I super identified where we would just make it the most fucked up storylines for our Barbies and stuff where like someone's husband was cheating with the other Barbie and they got pregnant and they like did a Thelma and Louise. Like, okay, I guess I also did the... the yeah, I was fast with death I was a morbid little child and I was like how do they die or we would just spend two hours setting up the Barbie house perfectly and dressing them and then we wouldn't um, even play anything but if oh. we did play anything it was always fucking wild it was wild always stories. like some next level days of our lives shit I also used to, like, cut my Barbie doll's hair into, like, punk haircuts and, like, oh, make no. them clothes out of socks and, like, dye their hair with oh, Kool-Aid and markers. No, I made all my Barbies super punk. I, well, I was just, like, that was the one big uh, no-no at our house is we mm. couldn't cut our doll's hair. Really? Yeah. I love that. I think that. it's just because my mom didn't want to replace them. Oh, She's yeah, like, yeah. It was, it's too expensive. My dad's like, yay for a mohawk. Sick. You know, all my dolls look like Cynthia. Oh, my God. Um, from Rugrats. Anyway, so research shows, yeah, that gender stereotype parenting in early childhood will influence kids later on. That, like, is pretty obvious. Like, children from families with traditional gender roles are more likely to have gender stereotypical expectations themselves. So in this study, fathers who had more gender stereotyped beliefs were more likely to use physical control with their boys than they were with their daughters. And then this created more aggression in their sons hmm. than in their daughters. Which might be why in 2012, for example, men were the perpetrators of 73% of violent crimes. Whoa. Yeah. Gender roles become a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts. We pass them down from generation to generation. When we say the way to control young boys, for example, is with physical violence, we turn them into people that need to be controlled with physical violence. Whoa. Yes. Very interesting. So I think about this a lot, actually. I think in the West, we have, like, this particularly destructive view of masculinity that we pass down to boys. Like our ideas of what it means to be a man are obviously like not good for society and for people. But it's not just in the United States. I think it's like in a lot of white Western cultures. Um, there's a Peruvian Australian uh, applied sociologist named Zuleika Zavalos who talks about this. 
And uh, Zavallo says, in Western societies, gender power is held by white, highly educated, middle-class, able-bodied, heterosexual men, whose gender represents hegemonic masculinity, the ideal to which other masculinities must interact with, conform to, and challenge. Hegemonic masculinity rests on tacit acceptance. It's not enforced through direct violence. Instead, it exists as a cultural script that are familiar to us from socialization. The hegemonic ideal is exemplified in movies, which venerate white heterosexual heroes, as well as in sports, where physical prowess is given special cultural interest and authority. Then there's also like the sociologist C.J. Pascoe, who finds that young working class American boys will police masculinity like this, often through jokes. Like they'll learn the masculinity from like television, movies, sports, and then they will police each other to make sure that they are adhering to that hegemonic kind of idea of masculinity. They'll usually call someone a homophobic slur if they perform actions that aren't in line with gendered expectations of masculinity. But in reality, it would be more socially acceptable to just be gay than to be feminine. Like if you were gay and masculine, that wouldn't be a problem. It's just the idea of femininity and the association of homophobia, like being gay with femininity is what this sociologist finds is actually the more kind of triggering thing for boys when they experience around each other. That reminds me of this headline I just saw where some, I think, actor got scurvy from going on a meat-only diet to become more masculine. Yes. Oh my god, this is such a thing. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like... I can't eat vegetables. They're gay. Yeah, it's gay to eat vegetables. I like that trend on Twitter, too, where somebody will say something, like, about someone else's masculinity, and then everyone will, like, reply to it or quote to tweet it with, fellas, is it gay, too? And then there was just this, like, cover that came out with Rihanna, with, like, her dude, and it's like, Rihanna's pregnant again. And someone was like, oh, like, you know, he's, like, not wearing the pants in that relationship because she's in front and taking the lead, and he's behind her. And someone quote tweeted it and was like, fellas, is it gay to get Rihanna pregnant twice? (laughs) (laughs) I love this trend. The fellas is it gay to trend on Twitter. It's very, very funny. But I think that's really interesting that, like, the thing about homophobia, for example, is that actually masculinity is more threatened by femininity than the actual gay part. But so much about being gay has to do with, like, blurring the lines between, like, traditional gender expression, and that's what people actually take the most issue with. You know, this is just what the sociologist was saying. I'd be really interested in hearing other people's kind of assessments of it, too. But this sociologist found specifically in children the things that got like the most kind of policing from other boys would be dancing, uh, taking too much care with your appearance, being too expressive with your emotions, or being perceived as incompetent. Whoa. Yeah, very The incompetent one is funny to me. It's because women are incompetent, Kenna. (laughs) What are you, stupid like a woman? (laughs) Can't drive a stick shift. Can't drive a stick shift. I will learn. I will fucking learn. I'll teach you how to drive a stick shift, Kenna. It'll be a bonus episode. Yeah, can it drive? No, if we, if we make if we make our goal on Patreon, I will learn how to drive a stick shift. If we, <laughs> what's our goal? I don't know. It has to be a lot for me to learn to drive a stick shift it has to in be LA. Eight months so we can quit our regular jobs and just do podcast full time. I will. Yeah, if 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 uh, we can do podcast full time, I will learn how to drive a stick shift in LA. Yeah, I mean, the other day I was standing on the corner talking to my favorite guy on the corner, 
um, Charles, obviously. Oh, yeah, Charles yeah. is cool. Yeah, I love Charles. And then I was, like, looking in a neighbor's backyard, and I was like, holy shit, they've got a Carmen Ghia back there. And Charles was like, you know what we used to call that, right? And I was like, yeah, the poor man's Porsche. And he was like, yeah, the poor man's Porsche. I used to steal those cars all the time, you know, whatever. We were just, like, riffing about the old days, and I was like, man, I want a Carmen Ghia so bad. That was my first car. I want another one. They're just so impractical. And he's like, how much would it cost you to buy a Carmen Ghia now? And I was like, I don't know, like, three grand? And he's like, you should just do it. And I'm like, okay, I don't, I'm not going to spend three grand on a Carmen Ghia right now. I have a car. It's my beautiful Kia. But then it got my wheels turning and I was like, maybe I should just buy a Carmen Ghia because I have no <laughs> fucking impulse control. <laughs> so if one day I give in to my demons and I buy a Carmen Ghia, it's stick shift and I will teach you how to drive that thing. Oh my God. And then I will stall it on like Sunset Boulevard. That's okay. So many horns bucking. That's okay. Me. It's a beautiful car. They'll deal. They'll be like, I'll be like, you're welcome for getting to look at the Carmen I'll just Ghia. Dr- I'll drive it topless and then no one will care. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. See? Performing they'll, they'll femininity. Be just, they'll be just, <laughs> I'm just really performing distraction right there. <laughs> I like it. Um, so, like, meanwhile, though, femininity, right, it is performed and constructed through patriarchal ideas as well. Like, by default, being feminine or a woman means being secondary or inferior to men because men have constructed the paradigm through which we view femininity. So, like, femininity under patriarchy means womanhood is defined through the male gaze. So Zayalis explains, as women do not have cultural power, there's no version of hegemonic femininity to rival hegemonic masculinity. There are, however, dominant ideals of doing femininity, which favor white, heterosexual, middle-class cis women who are able-bodied. Minority women do not enjoy the same social privileges in comparison. So this is kind of interesting. We have these, like, ideas of, like, what it kind of means to be a woman in Western uh, society and what it means to be a man. And we think about men as being, like, very dominant, very aggressive. We think about women, therefore, as being, like, subservient and secondary, um, you know, meek, timid, soft, supportive. And the combination of these kind of gender ideas and then the biological sex that falls on the spectrum these just interact to have very real and tangible impacts on people's lives. Um, like one example is that pain, for example, will be influenced by biological factors like differences in your thermal pressure and muscle pain sensitivity, which could correlate to your biological sex, but also cultural aspects like how women's, men's, and gender diverse individuals report pain and also how physicians treat pain in women and men patients, which is different. And also how patients perceived level of pain sensitivity will vary depending on the, the gender of the physician. So like a man physician treating someone that they perceive to be a woman will be like, you're weak. You're, you're, whatever you think your pain is that you're experiencing, it's not as bad as what you're saying. You know? Yeah. You know what's funny? One time uh, I got 30 shots in my hands and the, the, the dermatologist was like, most people won't let me do this. And I was like, I was like totally fine. I have a pretty, I have like an actually pretty, you know this, I have yeah. a very high pain tolerance. Right. And then I was like, why did you not think I could handle this? <laughs> but then uh, on the flip side, when I was, I had to get one of those, uh, what are they called? Where they zap you in the, not vagina. Oh, uh, the, the electric. Yeah. The leap? Leap. It's not leap. leap. It's like something else. A coloscopy mm. or whatever. Oh, yeah. Okay. And they're like, most painful experience I've ever yeah. had at a yeah. doctor's office. They're like, you're doing great. Like, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, I was like, this is the worst pain that I've ever had. But I'm like. 
oh, people must be screaming when this happens to them. Like when I had precancerous cells removed from my cervix, the doctor slipped and I literally got electrocuted in my (gasps) vagina, like on my (gasps) cervix. Oh no. It was the wildest pain I've ever experienced in my life. But yeah, I was just like, ah. And that was it. And then the doctor they don't was like, even what? give you ibuprofen. No, they don't like, give you shit. I'm like convinced that if like like I was a dude, they would give me like painkillers. Yeah, or it's like a really gnarly. You procedure. hear about like um, people getting vasectomies. Yeah, and then they like give them all these drugs. They give them like Vicodin. You get something like put in your cervix, and they're like. Yep, may- maybe take some Tylenol later. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I love seeing the period pain simulators. I love the period pain simulators. That's like, when guys, like, thing. just start crying. And they're at, like, level four. And then, like, their chick will be, like, at level, like, nine. Just like, yep, that feels about right. Yeah. Yes. And they're just like, I can't even. Like, that, I think, would switch, like, so many brains. To experience that, for sure. I mean, even, like, when I sprained my ankle, like, um, we always kind of joke, me and my boyfriend, that I have a pretty high pain tolerance. And I sprained my ankle. And the way I responded is that I, I grabbed his hand when it happened. And I was like, hey, I don't mean to alarm you, but I think something's seriously wrong. I've injured my foot. And I just said it like that. And my boyfriend was like, okay, well, like, let's just walk back to the hotel. And I was like, I think I might be injured to the point that I am not able to walk. And he was kind of like, well, you just, like, rolled your ankle. Like, you can walk. It's just going to be kind of annoying. Like, we're close. So I hobbled back to the hotel, and he was kind of roasting me. And he was like, maybe your pain tolerance isn't as high as we thought. Ha, ha, ha. <clears throat> so, cut to. <coughs> Sorry. I, like, get up to the hotel, take off my shoe. We look at my foot. My whole foot is swollen and black and, like, inflamed and huge. It's not like I've rolled my ankle. It's, like, something serious has happened to my foot. And he was just like, oh, my foot god you walked here on this you know but it's like that thing about like the perception of pain like because I was really calm in how I handled it he didn't perceive me to be in a lot of pain but I was really calm in how I handled it because to me that relatively was not as much pain as I've been in before yeah you know? so all of these things interact with our expectations and also a thing about me is that I'm like I'm tough like I perceive myself to be tough and I don't know how that interacts with my like socialized understanding of myself and gender you know yeah I think that I am just stoic yes Um, and I think maybe where that comes like in doctor's office where I don't want to seem hysterical right so a lot of times I've come in and people were like like when I was very ill people were like holy fuck yeah and I was just like oh yeah it's it's a real bummer. And then like, let's get to like the calmer I acted. I felt like the more, the more people would respond. Yeah. And that's why I was like, okay, like this is fucked up. But if I came and be like, this hurts so bad. Like they're not, they'd be like hysterical woman, hysterical woman. So I'd be overreacting. Like, yeah. Yeah. It what it's like, it's like weird. Cause it's like the calmer I act, except for in the case of the cervix thing, like <laughs> people are just like, oh, yeah, let's take it. We'll give you, like, pain meds. Like, what What do we need to do to help you? And I'm like, okay, this is so strange. Yeah, I mean, also, like, gender stereotypes about pain will also change how much pain people are willing to report and how much pain they perceive in their own bodies. So, like, for me, like like a gender thing where I'm like I'm tough like I'm strong I can handle everything it will literally change how much pain you imagine you're feeling hmm. so I'm like it's nothing it's fine it's nothing like I'm okay I'm tough you know like those things all psychologically impact you and that's just one example of how like 
biological traits about sex will interact with like gender which is this huge complicated social thing in these unique ways to have very tangible effects so like pain for example but there's also just like general gender-based discrimination that obviously occurs beyond this that doesn't have to do with your biological sex like um the fact that on average women around the world spend more than twice as many hours as men doing unpaid labor Oh, usually in the households, things like that. A divorce will have a greater negative effect on women financially than on men, which has a lot to do with, like, how women learn to manage money and, like, how society treats money as, like, um, kind of, like, a man's thing, you know? Like, women used to balance the checkbooks, but, mm-hmm. like, aren't taught, like, financial literacy skills. Like, also, like, survey after survey finds that parents are more likely to teach their sons about money and, like, how to build credit and how to invest than their daughters, There's also, like, media that's created by and for women that talks about financial advice and money way less than media created by and for men. Men, therefore, generally report having more financial confidence, especially when it comes to investing decisions. So just, like, your gender alone can impact your entire relationship with money, which is also why men save more money than women do. Yeah, I wonder, I would dare say that, um women probably spend more money than men do well it's average. performing femininity is expensive makeup is fucking expensive makeup nails hair clothes like all these a haircut like my hair is long like if i want to dye my hair it's like five hundred dollars it's hundreds of dollars and and also if you're a black woman doing your hair it's oh very very expensive oh my god yeah and then on top of this if you're a woman you're probably being underpaid because women earn 82 cents for every dollar a man makes still yeah and, and like you're also expected to have more outfits Yep, and women are also less likely to seek promotions than men are at work. Um, And, like, in the United States, only 17% of seats held in Congress are held by women. So, like, the types of jobs that women have are less likely to be, like, political or leadership-based. On top of all that, on top of, like, the money thing, the ways that, like, your gender can impact your life, women are frequently misrepresented in advertising and television based on gendered stereotypes. So you're just more likely to see, like, bad stereotypes of yourself um and then women love to shop women love to shop and you're like we love shopping yeah you're like i literally have to get all this shit otherwise you'll tell me i'm not being a woman the right way but okay (laughs) although i you know i i think everyone loves to shop um i think people do i don't like grocery shopping there's certain shopping i I love grocery shopping because i feel like i don't feel guilty about spending money because i need it oh my groceries it's my home i need it uh, no i that that could not be me oh i love it there's also like um violence obviously that women experience Mm. less than half of domestic violence incidents even get reported to the police but one in three girls will be a victim of physical verbal or emotional abuse in the united states one in four women will experience domestic violence and on average more than three women are murdered by their partners every single day in the united states wow Yeah, so, like, upholding traditional gender roles seeks to uphold the systems of power that keep men the dominant gender in society. And acknowledging the fact that biological sex and gender are not binary and that it's, like, this spectrum and, like, maybe people are even off of the spectrum when it comes to gender, that threatens the power system. Because the power Mm -hmm. system is just, like, no, it's men and then it's everybody who's subservient to men. And that's why we see so many men in particular being really resistant to acknowledging the science of biological sex as a spectrum and the sociology of gender as a construction. Yeah, I think it's, like, it's hard for people to to change. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's just, like, you think, like, for me sometimes, like, oh, yeah, you got this new information. Time to, like, you know, th- do some different stuff. But, like, 
a lot of people are not like that. Yeah, well, and it actually threatens their position of power. Yeah, like, because they were like, oh, well, this shit has been working for me forever. Like, I think, too, like, people get really tied, like, like nowadays to this, like, gender binary stuff. I think it's, like, weirdly partially because of our society and our lack of social safety net and our lack of community because you're just like, well, I'm on top now. My gender is on top now. If I lose any power, I'm fucked. Right. That's true, too. It's a fear-based because, thing. Maybe or it's, for like, kind of like a survival of the fittest, like, right. kind of vibe, which is, like, to me, very masculine or, like, masculine. Uh, Patriarchal. You know, patriarchy. That's it's the word that I was saying. Where it's, like, survival of the fittest. It's, like, the you know, I literally think people think it's, like, the monkeys or, like, the biggest monkeys. The biggest monkeys. You know, like, and then the most biggest you know, violent monkeys win. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, it's like a kind of like a primitive kind of positioning. I don't know where I was going with this, but you know. <laughs> yeah, big monkeys. Big monkeys will <laughs> fuck you up and they don't want you to win. Yeah, I think but that I makes think sense. people like I, you know, like you know, with like the alpha, the alpha dog. No, it's totally like, the alpha dog mentality. Yeah, yeah, and like I think I heard someone say someone where it's just like. Well, dogs also eat their own shit. Yeah, you don't want to model anything you're like <laughs> after your dog. Dogs love sniffing other butts. Yeah, it's true. I don't. I mean, if you're into that, that's fine. That's but totally fine. Maybe um, just not a random butt. A random butt. Um, well, on top of all of this, our gender experience, you know, obviously pretty big deal as we move through the world, right? It affects how people treat us. It affects how we view ourselves. But on top of this, there's also gender expression that comes into play. And gender expression, you know, is not necessarily the same as, like, your gender identity. Gender expression tends to be how we express gender through clothing, hairstyles, behaviors, and social roles. And this goes back to, like, those funny little things we talked about at the beginning of the episode, like how pink is a color for girls and men wear pants or whatever, right? But it's also why sometimes, um, I know, for example, I will hand my more masculine friend a jar and be like, I can't open it. And then they do. And I'm like, wow, we're so gender right now. Like, we're doing gender. Look at us gender so I'm hard. actually really good at opening jars. Okay, well, you can be the friend then. But I have a trick. Mom. What is it? You turn it upside down and whack the bottom. Oh, really? Yeah. And it works. It works a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah. Um, but all of this, it's like gender expression thing, it's a little callback maybe to Judith Butler's ideas expressed in her 1991 book, Gender Trouble, where she talks about gender being something you perform or do and align with gender stereotypes. Like the more we think that like men and women act differently, the more we act differently based on our perceptions of ourselves as a man or a woman, reinforcing the idea of the gender binary. And the performance is also intrinsically social, right? You're performing gender for an audience to receive you as that gender. Um, and maybe sometimes the audience is just like a little you in your own head who's mm -hmm. receiving it. But people's gender expressions might not match up with their gender identities, which is just another layer to add to all of this. Uh, like, for example, I might be like, yeah, I'm non-binary, but my gender expression is pretty feminine. Like, I look like a woman based on the fact that society has decided things like long hair and makeup and jewelry and nail polish are womanly things. I feel like I like those things just because I'm obnoxious and I like to decorate myself. Um, but, you know, society is like, that looks like a woman to me. And when my head was shaved, you know, maybe my gender expression fell a little more in line with what we think about as being non-binary. Who fucking knows? But, you know, it's this complicated thing about how people look isn't necessarily lining up with who they perceive themselves to be on the inside. And this is interesting taking into account this thing Jacqueline Rose once said, which is that the unconscious constantly reveals the failure of identity. There is no position for women or for men which is ever simply achieved. 
Failure is not a moment to be regretted. Instead, failure is something endlessly repeated and relived moment by moment throughout our individual histories. Like we are always kind of failing to perform gender correctly in the eyes of social convention in some capacity because gender is a rigid structure of stereotypes that allows little space for humanity and our individuality to seep through. And that's where gender nonconformity comes into play. We all will not conform to our gender at some point or another because it's pretty impossible to be performing gender constantly. And that too kind of happens on a spectrum. Like some of us are more or less gender non-conforming than others. And some of us are more or less in different spaces or at different times in our lives. And gender nonconformity doesn't necessarily equate to being transgender. We've always done this, right? Because we've always had things like tomboys, who are girls who like to do everything boys do, which, you know, could have been some queer closeting back in the day, but also could just, yeah, describe a girl who likes sports and hates makeup. Similarly, someone assigned male at birth might be very happy wearing makeup and nail polish and still being a man, and they would be a cisgender man who just happens to express more femininely. And some trans people might not want to change the way they express gender that much at all, but might still be trans. Someone might, for example, be a trans woman and a tomboy, not super interested in traditional markers of feminine gender expression in society like makeup or high heels, just because that's not what she's into. And that still wouldn't necessarily affect her gender. Which is why you cannot really tell someone's gender just by looking at them. Which I know has become a joke now. Like, did you just assume my gender? That's like a thing people joke about. But, you know, it is actually a real thing. You can't tell somebody's gender just by looking at them. But sometimes you can tell their gender by looking at their brain. <laughs> Very interesting, right? Whoa. So there was this, we went sci-fi there we went for a sci-fi. second. We went, we're looking at brains. <laughs> So there was a study published in May 2018 by the European Society of Endocrinology, and these researchers discovered that brain activity and structure in transgender adolescents more closely resembles the typical activation patterns of the gender they associate themselves with. Interesting. Yeah. So when MRI scans of 160 transgender youths were analyzed using a technique called diffusion uh, tensor imaging, the brains of transgender boys resembled the brains of cisgender boys, and the brains of transgender girls resembled the brains of cisgender girls. So put simply, transgender people's brains resemble their gender identity, not their biological sex. Um, so the thing about gender, you know, is that we've always kind of had people historically who didn't conform to it. Like, Lots of people kind of think this is, like, some new thing happening, and they're really confused about it. But that doesn't, like, match up with, like, what we know about human history at all. So I have all of these examples of different societies who have had either transgender people or there's been not just two genders but, like, a third gender or people who didn't fit into, like, a gender binary system. And there are so many of them. And this is just, like, a brief sampling. So, like, in Hawaii, there's a multiple gender tradition that existed among the Kanaka Maoli Indigenous Society, and it's the Mehu, which referred to biological females or males who inhabited a gender role somewhere between or encompassed both the masculine and the feminine. Um, and they would hold, so, uh, like, sacred social roles as educators or people who knew about the ancient traditions and rituals. Um, there's also in Samoa, American Samoa, or the Samoan diaspora. There's people who are the Fa'afafine, who identify themselves as third gender. And that would be like a recognized gender identity and gender role since at least the early 20th century in Samoan society. And lots of people think that it's probably been around for way longer than that. So usually these are people who would be biologically male or assigned male at birth and explicitly embody both masculine and feminine gender traits. Uh, and it's kind of like a unique thing that's part of Samoan culture. 
Also, prior to colonization, the Ankole people in what's now Uganda would elect a woman to dress as a man and thereby become an oracle to the god Mukasa. Hmm. <clears throat> Among the Sakalavas of Madagascar, little boys who were thought to have just like a more feminine appearance would sometimes be raised as girls. The Antidroi and the Hoya called their uh, kind of like expression of gender that crossed these traditional lines, secrata. And they would wear their hair long, like women in society did. They would do decorative knots. They would wear silver coins in their pierced ears. They'd adorn their arms, wrists, and anklets with brace or ankles with bracelets. You know, they would express themselves as though they were women in society. There's also in pre-colonial Andean culture, the Incas, they worshipped a dual-gendered god. And also third gender ritual attendants of shamans would perform like sacred rituals to honor this god. And the shamans would wear androgynous clothing as a visible sign of a third space that negotiated between the masculine and the feminine, which is pretty cool. Also today, the indigenous Zapotec culture of Oaxaca is not divided into like usual dichotomies of any kind, like gay or straight, male or female. There's a commonly accepted third category of mixed gender called mujeres, which is um, a name that's derived from mujer, which is the Spanish word for woman. But some are men who live as women and others identify just being like beyond a single gender completely. Indonesia also has a third gender, waria. Uh, one ethnic group, the Bugis, who number around 3 million people, recognize five genders. Their language offers five terms referencing various combinations of sex, gender, and sexuality. There's like something that would be the equivalent of female women, something that would be the equivalent of male men. There's also something that would be the equivalent of female men, male women, and transgender priests. Um, you know, they're not exact definitions because language can only do so much to express like cultural differences. But, you know, that's like a general idea of how we would think of them. Also in Pakistan and Bangladesh, the Hiras are officially recognized as a third gender by the government, being neither completely male nor female. Also in India, transgender people have been given uh, the status of third gender and are protected by law, despite social ostracism that still happens. But the term more commonly advocated by social workers and transgender community members themselves would be Kwayasira, which can identify the individual as um, a trans person or even something more like what we would think of as like a cross-dresser back in the day, or even something like a eunuch. Hmm. It's very different expressions of gender. There's also in Thailand, um, you know, if you're like a transgender woman or an effeminate gay male, you would be called the katoi, right? Or like people used to call them lady boys, but white people don't feel comfortable calling it that. But that's like what a lot of people call them in Thailand. And a significant number of Thais perceive them as just being part of a third gender, while others will see them as kind of a man or kind of woman or somewhere in between. Um, you know, and this is something that's really, really prevalent in Thailand. And actually, I remember I like followed this fashion company who was from Thailand on Instagram once. And they posted like something like in honor of ladyboys. And they were Thai, so they called them ladyboys when they did the post in English. Because that's just colloquially what they're referred to there. Like, oh yeah, like this awesome thing and like supporting the ladyboys in our community. And all of these like white western women were like, you can't call them that. This is horrible, you know. But it's just a cultural thing there. It's very normalized there. And that's just like the term for it. And it's like, no, this isn't like a slur. This is just a normal part of our society. Um, also, like, anthropological research indicates well over 100 instances of diverse gender expression in Native American tribes. 
um, like before Europeans came. The most common modern term for gender non-conforming members would be like two-spirit. Uh, and that's used by some indigenous North Americans to describe certain spiritual people who might be gay or lesbian or bisexual or gender variant in their communities. And this term was adopted in 1990 at an indigenous lesbian and gay international gathering to encourage the replacement of the anthropological term that had existed before it, which I think was called Berdache. But two-spirit would not be interchangeable with just being like LGBT and Native American. The title differs from most Western mainstream definitions of sexuality and gender identity. It's not really about like who you sleep with or how you personally identify. It's more about a sacred spiritual and ceremonial role that's recognized and confirmed by the elders of the two-spirit ceremonial community. Um, you know, people use it in intertribal organizing, but not all Native cultures conceptualize gender or sexuality the same way, right? It's really, really diverse. And most tribes will use different names in their own languages. But two-spirit has generally kind of become more socially acceptable to use just in a general way. And I feel like people are starting to use it more and more. But individual tribes do also have their own classifications. Like the Lakota have their own classification. The Ponca, you know, lots of people do. To describe kind of third gender roles, which are usually adopted by people who are biologically male and who we might think of as like being a transgender woman in society today. But it's not equivalent, right? It's more spiritual. It's different. And there can be different manifestations of it too, um, which is really interesting. Also the Navajo, the Diné, they traditionally had five genders also, like the other one we talked about. Um, even like if you go like to like Italy and you look at like Naples, there's this centuries old phenomenon of people who are assigned male at birth who dress and behave as women. And these were considered respected figures traditionally believed to bring good luck. It's a cultural tradition that might go back to like pagan rituals like back in the day. Also in Persia 3000 years ago, there was a third gender. And this was discovered from historical artifacts that were found in burial sites in kind of the area that today is northwestern Iran. One researcher ran this analysis on 51 tombs with like hundreds of burials and one cluster of artifacts that tended to appear together would be like needles, garment pins, and jewelry. And these were usually associated with skeletons biologically identifiable as female. But another cluster, which would be like metal vessels, weapons, and armor, those were usually found next to male skeletons. This analysis, though, found that around 20% of the total burials were a third cluster of co-occurring objects, like unusual combinations that would draw from different types of genders, and they would be buried with skeletons that had both sexes. So this led researchers to believe that, like, oh, okay, there were funeral sites clearly mapped to women, funeral sites clearly mapped to men, and funeral sites clearly mapped to a third different gender. Similarly, a transgender skeleton was found in Prague that dates way back to like 2900 BC, like during the Copper Age. The body's biologically male, but was buried in all funerary customs associated with women. There was also a woman from the Mesolithic period who was assumed to be a warrior, typically associated with men from the region, but was buried with weapons. So basically, this idea of being gender nonconforming it might feel new to people in the Western world, but it is not new at all, given like anything we know about human history. Like genderqueer people have always existed. There are so many societies that honor more than just two genders. And we have two genders because yeah, they were set up and established by our culture. That's something that our culture did, but that doesn't mean that's what every culture did. And that doesn't mean that's what's natural. <clears throat> so even though there's like all this historical precedent and this should be something that people are really receptive to because it's 
biologically normalized, given the fact that biological sex is a spectrum, it's historically normalized. Still, the current landscape of like gender and gender equality, it kind of can look bleak, right? Like uh, compared to the general population, if you are a kid in like school and you're gender diverse is kind of a term they use to be like a catch all for people who aren't like cisgender, you're going to face drastically increased rates of bullying, assault, depression, school dropout, drug abuse, self-harm, and even suicide. Just so sad. A 2009 report from the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network kind of talked about this and found that nearly 90% of transgender youth surveyed had experienced verbal harassment at school because of their gender expression. Two-thirds expressed feeling unsafe at school, which is just like so heartbreaking, and more than half experienced physical harassment. A quarter experienced straight-up physical assault, and most of these incidents were never reported to school officials. Uh, there's some other like really sobering statistics about adults who don't fit into the gender binary. Seven in 10 trans people, uh, 70% report being impacted by transphobia when accessing general health services. And I guess, you know, trans people can fit into the gender binary. So that was maybe me being a little loose with my words, but people who aren't cisgender. Nearly half of trans people, 45%, said that their general practitioner did not have a good understanding of their needs as a trans person. Um, and for non-binary people, this was 55%, which I thought was interesting. One in four trans people uh, aren't open with anyone at work about even being trans. And this number increases to about two in five for non-binary people. More than a third of trans students face negative comments or conduct from university staff, like at a college level because of their gender. And two in five trans people, 41%, have experienced a hate crime or incident because of their gender identity. So there's this report by Massive Science that says like, currently discrimination based on sex and gender is widespread. For example, the language used in legal documents like licenses and passports often conflates sex and gender. And in many areas of life, the law offers protection only for binary sexes and genders. Even when certain states like California have acted progressively and enabled people to choose non-binary as a gender marker on their driver's license, the federal government has been slow to catch up. This leaves people vulnerable in many ways, including in the workplace, housing market, and healthcare. Acknowledging the spectrum of sex can begin to break down the stigma. There are a few positive examples the U.S. could follow. Some countries, including Australia, allow people to self-identify as a third gender or sex. Germany also allows a third sex designation, but only if the person is born with intersex traits. Though there are a few countries that allow for identification as a third sex, they don't necessarily offer legal protections for this third sex. Many, for instance, don't have laws that prevent medically unnecessary surgeries from being performed on intersex people without their consent, which is really, really scary, especially when we heard about all the intersex kids who had these surgeries performed on them as, as yeah, babies. Yeah, I, I still think about that Maury episode because that <clears throat> was the thing that got me being like very small, being like, they like, they got it wrong and they gave me all these surgeries. And I was like, ah. Yeah. Um, just creating a new box to fit people into doesn't necessarily solve the problem. That's what this report says. To truly put an end to sex and gender-based discrimination, we need legislation that considers sex as a spectrum with unlimited options. So on top of that, there's also the discrimination that happens on the biological sex front too, with yeah, intersex people experiencing higher rates of stigma and discrimination and high rates of engaging in behavior to avoid exposure to discriminatory treatment, discriminatory treatment, sorry, like uh, avoiding going to the doctor outright. 69% of LGBTQ plus intersex respondents reported experiencing some form of discrimination in the year before the survey, which is roughly two times the rate uh, reported by LGBTQ plus people who are not intersex. 
According to one survey, 88% of LGBTQ plus intersex respondents reported experiencing some form of discrimination from a doctor or healthcare provider, which could refuse, uh, could include refusal of care, harsh language, or physical abuse compared to just 19% of respondents who weren't intersex. And this just really gets me because if you truly believe that gender should be some sort of one-to-one -one reflection of biological sex, why would you be discriminating against intersex people for not being gender conforming in some capacity, right? Like, why would you deny the existence of non-binary people if that's something you believe? Because even in the most stunted correlation of like sex equals gender, which we know isn't real, but even if you thought that, you would have to acknowledge the very real prevalence of intersex people, like 2% of the population, and therefore see the need for a gender beyond man and woman to accommodate their biological sex, wouldn't you? <clears throat> so that's what I don't really get. And this whole idea about like how much gender relates to biological sex, this comes into this idea called bioessentialism. Have you ever heard of this? Oh, I think a little bit. <clears throat> okay, so this is something that's really interesting um, because this is something we see in transphobic spaces, but also sometimes it's talked about within queer spaces. Um, there's a lot of ongoing debate even within the trans community about how closely ideas of gender and sex should be tied. And a lot of these conversations center on this idea of body dysphoria. Like, how do you feel about the body you're in? And there's, yeah, this notion called bioessentialism that does reduce gender to kind of biological sex. And this is where we get into sticky territory, right, with um, our trans-exclusionary radical feminists, the TERFs, who we hate, the J.K. Rowling scum, right, who, who conflate <sighs> sex and gender uh, so much that they just ignore science and facts completely. And they'll often say that the uni unifying experiences of womanhood involve things like menstruating or having a uterus. So my grandma... Yeah, your grandma's not a woman, no. <laughs> it's super weird, yeah. It means you can't be a woman if you've had a hysterectomy, you know? It's like all these, it doesn't make sense. And that's how we get into these weird, bad definitions of what a woman is that we can't even fucking follow. Um, this is also where we get into interesting territory within the LGBTQ community about what exactly it means to be transgender and how much pressure should be placed on gender nonconforming or trans people to medically transition to express a gender more closely related to their gender identity. And I have a quote from a piece written by a genderqueer person that talks about these concepts, uh, transmedicalism and bioessentialism, in a way I think is really interesting and resonates, especially in the context of intersex liberation. So I'm just going to read the quote here. Um, it's kind of long, but the whole piece is listed in our notes. It'll be a source for anyone who wants to read more. But I think it's like a really good kind of quote about this. So, in thinking about this, this person says, these concepts link to the term true scum, a term used to describe individuals who believe that at the core of the transgender authenticity is gender dysphoria. In order to truly be a trans person, you must experience consistently the overwhelming displeasure and at times agony of a body whose gendered components do not represent one's true self. Of course, the acknowledgement of gender dysphoria has long been central to signposting to cisgender communities that dire need for trans-specific health services. Gender dysphoria is an issue which can proliferate into anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicidality. Gender dysphoria, or gender incongruence, a lesser-used term which many individuals, myself included, prefer, had to be acknowledged and addressed because as a community, this difficult and challenging aspect of our existence was killing us. We needed access to hormone replacements. We needed access to surgeries, reproductive treatments, mental health support. Our dysphoria was not and is not symptomatic of psychopathology. It is a symptom of the trauma experienced when the body does not represent the self, and it is a trauma. Nevertheless, there is a toxic and insidious nature to the presumption that this dysphoria exists as a mandatory prerequisite of authentic transness. 
Our presumptions that a gendered anatomy must distress all transgender people finds grounding in a presumption regarding how anatomy has been gendered across all eras and cultures. An assumption that if predominantly white Western culture has determined that particular anatomies are exclusively male and female, it is innate to ourselves that we feel this way also. We assume that all intersex individuals live in a constant state of abject distress and despair at the potential anatomical inconsistencies of their bodies due to the at times variant nature of their internal reproductive organs and external sex characteristics. We assume that, quote, male and, quote, female are concepts which translate universally across borders through languages, and that one exact diagram of male and female bodies is the tool with which the translation can and does occur. Bioessentialism, the very core of the argument behind the gatekeeping and gender authenticity, operates on a notion that absolute truths pertaining to what each component of human anatomy represents exist. A transgender man must experience dysphoria about his female-coded breast tissue in order to exist in a state of trans validity. But what does this say of cisgender men who developed gynecomastia, which is the condition that gives cisgender men breast tissue? If this occurs naturally on a male body, is this not too what a male physique can look like? If we denounce this as pathological in nature, what too must we renounce in a body before the idea of the pure natural self can be formulated and thus upheld? In attempting to formulate this male body, what is considered essential? If we include height, how tall? How many cisgender men from differing ethnic communities will not meet the expected height? Do we include a penis and revoke the male validity of all men who have experienced genital amputation or injury? How about men with Klinefelter syndrome, where their proclivity for developing rounded hips uh, and increased risk of infertility? In considering the anatomically authentic female, does the phallic nature of the clitoris determine that only women who possess a particular size of sexual organ are true women? At what point do we echo trans-exclusionary radical feminists in the call for biological human females? Bioessentialism lays its foundations in an ableist body-shaming rhetoric which expects a pure, performative, and performed masculinity or femininity. Cisgender or transgender, how many of us meet the requirement? So how many of us should be expected to hate aspects of our anatomy in order to fulfill them? <clears throat> so I just really like this because I think that this speaks to why it's so important for again for us to like treat um the idea that like you need gender affirming surgeries as important and something that's medically necessary but also while acknowledging not everybody's going to need those things and it's okay and not everybody has to hate their body to have a true trans experience um and that there's a lot of people who fall somewhere in between or a lot of people who don't hate their bodies but still do need gender affirming surgeries things like this so this focus on bioessentialism at all conflating sex and gender to this like really really extreme degree it's harmful it's harmful both to intersex children who are often forced into dangerous and risky surgeries to attempt to force their bodies into some sort of biological sex binary as well as to trans people or gender non-conforming people who are also sometimes pressured to express their gender in a way that matches some sort of failed pseudoscientific thought process unfairly linking gender too closely to biological sex the reality is that some people will want their gender and sex to match more closely than others. And for most people, it's not one question so much as it is many different smaller questions since the indicators of biological sex are diverse and varied and gender expression is diverse and varied too. And, you know, if we think about all of this and we're like, well, what's natural? What's the natural state? I like hate these kind of like appeal to nature arguments, right? Because there is no natural state. 
Like, humans aren't even the only animals who experience gender and sex-related shifts beyond the binary. Like, seahorses, pipefish, and sea dragons all have pregnancy as a male reproductive process. In these species, the male will fertilize the eggs that are deposited within a pouch in his belly, and then he carries his developing embryos until they're ready to be birthed. There's also female-spotted hyenas, which have a pseudo-penis that's capable of erection and can be as much as 90% the size of a male hyena's penis. They also have two fleshy masses at the base of this pseudo-penis, which appear to look like a scrotum. Where you'd expect there to be a vagina, spotted hyena females have fused labia. Female-spotted hyenas also dominate males behaviorally. Chickens can also naturally undergo gender changes. This is because female chickens can uh, have like one functional ovary on their left side, but they have two sex organs that are present from their embryonic stage onward through their lifespan. So if the left ovary shrinks within a hen, then its right gonad might start just like secreting androgens, turning the hen into a rooster. So basically, sex and gender exist beyond the binary naturally and always have in a lot of different ways. And it's natural for there to be biological diversity when it comes to both. So there's no use trying to decide for anyone else what the right or wrong way for any single person to do gender or biological sex actually is. So that brings us back to the question, what is a woman? Kenna, do you have any fresh insights? Do you have anything? Or do you (laughs) stick into the first one? Uh, I'm going to stick to the first one. Uh, If you say you're a woman, you're a woman. Yeah, I think that's good. I think you should double down on that. Because a woman is whoever the fuck feels like they're a woman, basically. Yeah, I am just going to go with that one. Mm -hmm. It's impossible not to give a recursive definition for it. Because it doesn't exist as this one objective true thing in the world. It only exists as a feeling or as a series of performances based on what everyone's individual way of valuing certain aspects of gender performance even are. A woman is whatever we as a society decide a woman is, and whoever decides, hey, I think that kind of sounds like me, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's about as close uh, to a fact as you can get when it comes to gender, I think. It's messy and complicated and confusing, and that's why sometimes your gender uh, is maybe just a kid who showed up to school dressed as a scary ghost, then had a mental breakdown because they weren't performing femininity well enough and decided peak femininity was being a nurse instead. I know. But basically, it's all a mess, so... That's why the thing about gender is you're just supposed to do what you want. Let people live. Yeah. That's it. Do you have anything you want to add to the episode about gender? No. No. It's it's messy. Hmm? Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think it's just like so much about the world could be chill if you were just like, I'm going to let people do their thing. Just be nice. Just just be groovy, man. Like, just yeah. be chill and groovy to people. Have, yeah, be groovy, man. Be groovy, man. And that's the episode on gender. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on Patreon for $2 a month, you can get access to bonus content, including bonus episodes. That is patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. And as always, the sources for the research for this week's episode can be found in our show notes.